Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, 10 houses of refuge were built in Florida between 1876 and 1886 to help shipwreck survivors. We'll talk with author Sandra Thurlow. So many people are enthusiastic about lighthouses and even the life-saving stations that are uh, elsewhere in the country, but the poor houses of refuge are just not appreciated as far as their importance. We'll look at some early annuals or yearbooks from the University of Florida in Gainesville. What we're looking at now is the oldest of the editions of the Seminole, the University of Florida's annual that we have in the collection. It dates from 1913 and we'll visit the Sanford Museum north of Orlando. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Sandra Thurlow has written a series of books on the history of the Indian River region of the east coast of Florida, including Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge, Home of History. Her latest book, co-authored with Timothy Dring, is called U.S. Lifesaving Service, Florida's East Coast. The book looks at all of America's houses of refuge, which were all built in Florida. Ten houses of refuge were built by the U.S. Lifesaving Service between 1876 and 1886 to help shipwreck survivors. Sandra Thurlow. Well, it's surprising how uh, sparsely it was populated. They called it a howling wilderness, especially the lower East Coast. And uh, so when shipwrecks happened, uh, the survivors usually came to shore or got to survive that far, but then their life was in question because there was no way to find civilization to get food or water, and they didn't know which way to go. And so after storms, the keepers of the House of Refuge would walk in either direction and look for survivors. Sumner Increase Kimball led the U.S. Lifesaving Service from its creation in 1871 until it merged with the U.S. Revenue Cutter Service in 1915 to form the U.S. Coast Guard. 
he was a brilliant bureaucratic supervisor, and he was it was his brainchild because the uh, embryonic life-saving service was in terrible shape and wasn't functioning properly, so he envisioned uh, a properly run one, and he was working in the Treasury Department, and uh, he uh, envisioned a reformed, improved life-saving service, and he was in charge of it the whole time. He had it such uh, divided into districts, and there were always reports, so there's voluminous paperwork surviving. Under the direction of Sumner Increase Kimball, the activities of the Houses of Refuge were quite well documented, including detailed annual reports. What's interesting is when I connected with Timothy Dring, and he is the president of the uh, U.S. Life-Saving Heritage Association. It's a national group. It's not a large group, but it's a very effective group. And on their website today, you can go, and you can go through all the annual reports, so you get all that primary documentation. And uh, it's so improved from the days of yore when you had to go to microfilm. Thurlow and Dring assembled hundreds of photographs for their book, U.S. Life-Saving Service, Florida's East Coast. While written records for the Houses of Refuge were plentiful, photographs were not. Sandra Thurlow. Each one is precious. And uh, for instance, a few years ago, I was here at the Florida Historical Society giving a talk, and one of the people in the audience gave me a lead about a person who was in the Coast Guard, and that was what evolved from the life-saving service. And uh, I connected with this man, Wally Wallace, and got two more precious pictures. Each one is precious. And another big find recently was because of Florida Frontiers. I heard an interview of a granddaughter of a House of Refuge keeper, Samuel Coutant, who had been a keeper for 22 years at the Mosquito Lagoon House of Refuge. And this woman had been 87 when she was interviewed by Janie Gould. But, and it was like three years later that I listened to the podcast. And uh, Janie said, oh, I have her phone number. And I called her. And she's perky. And my husband and I visited her. And she had the first ever... Uh, pictures I had of the keeper in a uniform doing day-to-day activities at a house of refuge. So that's an example of just building uh, a few at a time the photograph collection. In addition to the 10 houses of refuge that were unique to Florida, there were also life-saving stations here. The houses of refuge were manned by a keeper and his family, while the life-saving stations were staffed by professional crews. While Thurlow's book focuses on Florida's East Coast, she does include the Santa Rosa Island Life-Saving Station near Pensacola. I included the one in Santa Rosa because it was the only one besides the one on the East Coast of Florida, in Florida. And I also included uh, the Sullivan's Island Coast Guard Station in Charleston, close to Charleston, South Carolina, because that was in our same district. And so it involved involved the same uh, men. They went back and forth, and crew members at the Sullivan's Island uh, life-saving station became keepers in Florida. Today, you can visit Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge in Stewart. It's on the National Register of Historic Places and is preserved as a museum. Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge is the only one of ten still standing.
Yes, it is. It's been uh, something I've continued to do. I won't give up because I think it is one of the more important parts of really early pioneer Florida. And that's my primary interest, the really early days in Florida. And it's just not appreciated. So many people are enthusiastic about lighthouses and even the life-saving stations that are uh, elsewhere in the country. But the poor houses of refuge are just not appreciated as far as their importance. And they form such a structure for the governmental presence in Florida when there was nothing here. So people at least had that. Houses of refuge were unique to Florida. In the late 1800s, even if shipwreck survivors made it to land, conditions here were formidable. Coincidentally, the most exciting time ever in a house of refuge was right there at Gilbert's Bar. And it was in October uh, 1904. There were two shipwrecks back to back, and there were 22 men put up in the house of refuge. As a result of those shipwrecks, quite a few casualties involved. But uh, one has become an underwater archaeological site right off of the Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge. People dive on it, and on a calm day, you can see a bit of the, the wreckage uh, from the House of Refuge porch. But uh, two ships, the George's Valentine and the Casado, wrecked within 24 hours, I would say. Shipwrecks didn't happen every day, of course. The ten houses of refuge in Florida were mostly occupied by families, and daily life could be slow-paced. Sandra Thurlow. I don't think daily life was so bad for the keeper, but for the wives, I just can imagine the loneliness and um, the hunger for other women to talk to, and that just didn't exist at the time. So uh, shipwrecks were very seldom And so it was just um, cooking, doing the duties of any housewife, and being lonely, and doing everything under hard conditions. And for our particular house of refuge, which is right on the ocean, uh, it must have been hard to cope with just the salt spray all the time. There are many stories of individual keepers of the Houses of Refuge and their family members in the book U.S. Life-Saving Service, Florida's East Coast. Thurlow's favorite story is about a shipwreck survivor named Axel Johansson. And this is his story, that he was Norwegian and he was in a shipwreck off of Chester Shoal House of Refuge. And he washed ashore with little life left in him. And uh, he passed out as soon as he got to the sand. And two daughters of the House of Refuge uh, came and discovered him and told their parents, and they nursed him back to health. And he went back to Norway. And um, it was the days of sailing ships dwindling, and his life had changed, and he remembered Florida and the good reception and care he got in Uh, on Cape Canaveral, really, and he uh, came back and married one of the daughters. And I never had a picture of the daughter. And she was uh, a, a descendant of a lighthouse keeper at Cape Canaveral Lighthouse, and her mother had only known being at the lighthouse or at the House of Refuge. And I didn't have a picture, but I did just get it, a picture of Kate Johansson, Kate Quarterman, Johansson last fall, and it's included in the book. When the U.S. Coast Guard was formed in 1915, it took control of the Houses of Refuge. I think there were eight that were still standing then, and they became Coast Guard stations, and they all received a number. 
Like for instance, the Gilbert Spire House of Refuge was 207. And so Albert uh, Axel Johansson happened to be keeper, and Kate, the woman I just described, was uh, the wife there. And uh, so he became surfman number one, and she stayed there and cared for the crew. And for the first time, there was a crew at the House of Refuge instead of just being a family. And that was true with the other ones at the same time. They had a crew, and you have to realize uh, World War I came pretty soon, and so there were additional duties of surveillance and walking the beaches for security reasons. After World War II, Florida's coastline was becoming much more populated and the houses of refuge went out of service. During times of war, the Coast Guard is under the Navy, the control of the Navy, and uh, so they had to patrol the beaches during World War II also, and also look for airplanes and, and keep their eyes out for everything. Uh, and so uh, afterwards, they were decommissioned, and every single one of them is in public land now. Sandra Thurlow and Timothy Dring are co-authors of the book U.S. Life-Saving Service, Florida's East Coast, which covers the history of our state's unique houses of refuge. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch archived episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. You can subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and find great books on Florida history and culture. That's myfloridahistory.org. Between 1995 and 2013, the number of college yearbooks or annuals published in the United States dropped from 2,400 to 1,000. The University of Florida stopped publishing its yearbook in 2008. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, we're looking at some very early University of Florida annuals here. Yeah, that's right, Ben. We have a, a fairly extensive collection of uh, both college and local high school annuals or yearbooks. But we're looking at today are all from the University of Florida. And the title of the yearbook is ironically the seminal. I'll get into that in a minute. But I want to talk 
briefly about the uh, history of the university itself. Uh, now, the University of Florida officially uh, uh, sets its uh, origins date back to 1853, uh, which was the establishment of the East Florida Seminary. And the state of Florida, going back to the territorial period, actually had uh, begun uh, uh, devising a plan to establish a publicly funded institution or a uh, number of institutions of higher learning in Florida. That finally came to fruition in the 1850s when the uh, East Florida Seminary and West Florida Seminary were established. East Florida Seminary was in Ocala in present-day Marion County, but it wasn't until the 20th century that the University of Florida uh, that we know of as uh, today was actually formed. And it's actually the combination of several different institutions, including the Florida Agricultural College, which was in Lake City, founded in 1884, the St. Petersburg Normal and Industrial College, which was over in St. Petersburg, and the South Florida Military College. They were all uh, brought in under one roof uh, moved to Gainesville in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, this was all because of the 1905 Buckman Act, and Henry Buckman was a state legislator who completely uh, redefined the state's uh, higher education system and streamlined the system, consolidating a lot of these smaller colleges into uh, only three uh, publicly funded uh, institutions of higher learning, including what would become the University of Florida at the time was called the University of the State of Florida in Gainesville, the Florida State College for Women, which later became Florida uh, State University in Tallahassee, and the State Normal School for Colored Students, which became Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, now known as FAMU. Well, Ben, you pulled several University of Florida annuals from the Florida Historical Society archive, and one of them is more than a century old. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at now is the oldest of the editions of the Seminole, the University of Florida's annual that we have in the collection. It dates from 1913, and this is actually only the fourth edition. They only started publishing a yearbook in 1910. Now, again, the university didn't start until uh, 1906 when the first class was admitted. So in 1913, we'll take a look at this book. It's a little bit different from your from your regular yearbook. It's actually laid out in a landscape uh, format, and it was printed by the senior class. So it was almost entirely created and funded by the senior class. And it includes a lot of uh, really interesting tidbits, something like what you would see in a, in a yearbook today. They have dedications. There's, of course, a listing of all of the faculty, uh, all of the uh, student body. But they also list some really interesting facts about the um, different sporting events uh, at the University of Florida. Uh, now, uh, nowadays, in the 21st century, the university is well known for its football program. Uh, but back in the 1912-1913 uh, season, uh, the, the football program was, was fairly small. In fact, the entire school only numbered about 300 students. Um, but the football program, their, their biggest rival, believe it or not, was actually Stetson uh, College up in Deland. And here we're, I've opened the, the book up to a panoramic photograph of the athletic field. And you can see some uh, of the students scurrying around in their leather helmets and their mismatched uniforms and a small crowd of maybe a few hundred people pales in comparison to a game nowadays. Uh, but uh, it, this particular game, they, they beat Stetson 27 to 3. Uh, so it was a resounding victory. And of course, all the senior class write all of their uh, remembrances and special notes about that particular game. But as you flip through, you'll also notice there are some wonderful photographs of the campus itself. Several of these buildings still exist today. But if you look in between a lot of the buildings, uh, they're just dirt paths. There are no paved roads. There's still pine scrub forests throughout most of the campus buildings. Within the course of the next few decades, the university expanded rapidly. That's really evident when we look at the second yearbook that I've pulled from 1942. Now, this is right in the uh, beginning stages of the Second World War. 
Now, I forgot to mention, thinking about this 1913 yearbook, a lot of the young men who are pictured here uh, went on to fight in the First World War. And several of these men, especially from the freshman classes, by the time they graduated, they went right into the military. And many of them uh, were either killed in action or or killed by influenza and and never came back to Florida, unfortunately. But here we are a few decades later, 1942, and the same story is true. A lot of the young men that were in this uh, featured in the 1942 yearbook either dropped out of school if they didn't already graduate to join the armed forces. In fact, it was during this time period that the university had some serious financial issues because of the lack of attendance due to the wartime. And and a lot of this yearbook is dedicated to the ROTC program and the military training that was going on on the University of Florida campus uh, during the war. In fact, in 1944, the university didn't even publish an annual because of the financial restrictions and, and other restrictions during the during the war. They uh, started back up after the war. In fact, after World War II, there was such an influx of students that the university became co-educational. And the uh, Florida Women's College became Florida State University and also became co-educational. Now, the last book that we have in the collection actually dates from 19... Uh, this one's from 1964. And if you compare some of the activities that are going on on campus and, and uh, a lot of the cultural characteristics from the 1913 edition, there are certainly some similarities, but the university has grown quite a bit and has changed substantially at that time. In 1958, the, the school became desegregated. Uh, and especially in the mid to late 1960s, there was a lot going on culturally, and a lot of that was happening right on the campus of the University of Florida. Well, Ben, while, of course, a lot of these students are no longer with us, these annuals are more than just a, a record of their time at school. They're, they're great tools for historians. Thanks a lot. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. In the late 19th century, the city of Sanford was a transportation hub and was much more prosperous than Orlando, its neighbor to the south. Quentin Murray, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this look at the Sanford Museum. The museum was founded on the wishes of Henry Sanford's wife, and the wishes were fulfilled by his daughter, Carola Sanford Dow. In 1957, the city agreed to build a small museum as a memorial to the city founder. His daughter had been concerned that the city would not remember her father. The family does not live here. There's no statue to him. There's no building named after him. So this was founded as a memorial to tell people who he was. His wife, in her will of 1902, had wished the people of Sanford to learn their country's history by learning from her husband's collection. His daughter wanted them to learn about her father. That was Alicia Clark, curator of the Sanford Museum. She talked to me about the Sanford Museum, which was founded to remember Henry Sanford. 
The Henry Shelton Sanford exhibit at the Sanford Museum is actually part of the original museum. Uh, we're now celebrating our 60th anniversary. The museum was founded in 1957 as a memorial to Henry Sanford. So the museum has two parts, our City of Sanford collection and exhibit and our Henry Sanford exhibit. Uh, this comprises uh, a reproduction of his library from his home in Derby, Connecticut, and another room that has some family portraits and furniture from his life in Connecticut and his married life in Brussels, Belgium. The founding of Sanford was a collective effort. The Chase Gallery helps to depict this. The museum is divided into two parts. We have the Henry Shelton Sanford Memorial Library and Museum, and we have the Chase Gallery. In our Chase Gallery, we tell the story of the beginnings of our city and the vision that Henry Sanford had for our town. And then we go on to tell the story of the people who built our town. We feel it's our mission to not only perpetuate the memory of Henry Sanford, but to tell the story of all the people who built our city. When Henry Sanford was in search for new economic markets, he started his search in Florida. Henry Sanford first invested in Florida in about 1869. He invested in land in St. Augustine. He had heard about the great prospects for Florida, and there was already word coming out of Florida about the um, investments in citrus. In our area here, we had the famous Spear Grove, which people would travel up the river to come and visit, and there were experiments being done at the Hart Grove. Henry Sanford came with his wife, Gertrude, up the river on a riverboat, after viewing his lands in St. Augustine in early 1870. They have landed at the community of Mellonville, which many people feel is the beginning of our town. This was a sort of frontier pioneer village. He arrived there, and he saw the prospects of the land to the west of Mellonville. He found the land was for sale, and he purchased 23 square miles from a local Confederate general named Joseph Finnegan. The reason that he was buying the land here to develop it was he felt that there was a great deal of money to be made in the beginnings of the citrus industry. Henry Sanford propelled the citrus industry, even from an absentee point of view. Henry Sanford is considered a founder of the Florida citrus industry because of the investments that he made here in his city. He built a grove named Bel Air on the west side of town, and at that grove he created an experiment station. He even tried to get the federal government to declare it an official experiment station. He imported over 140 varieties of citrus into Florida. He did not personally live here or cultivate this citrus. He paid other people to do that. But his idea was to create a citrus industry here that would generate um, income for him and for the other people of Florida. With the help of increased settlement, Sanford's visions initially succeeded. For many years, people would say that the community of Mellonville, which grew up around Fort Mellon, became Sanford. It did not. It is Henry Sanford's vision of a city that is our city. Mellonville, in an attempt to maintain an identity of its own, incorporated itself after the city began to grow and attempted to maintain its uh, existence. It actually gave up and allowed itself to be annexed into Sanford late in the 19th century. Even with the lack of prosperity, Sanford's efforts created a new life for settlers. His money built the, the roads the, the, as a city. It built a place for people to come to. His company helped to get things like waterworks and regular riverboat service here. But for him, so it was successful for the people who came here. It was a successful town for the people whose descendants still live here. But for Henry Sanford personally, this was a financial disaster and he never made any money off the town. It was meant to be the dowry for his daughters. When he died in his early 60s, he had nothing but debts, and the town was part of the reason. However, today his contribution is 
all of these varieties of citrus that he brought to Florida, his vision of Florida as a place known for citrus and as a city builder. At the time that he was still alive, Sanford was one among only a few major cities and a transportation hub in Florida. Our city was built on riverboats and railroads. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Quentin Murray, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can also watch archived episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.